0: Welcome to Season 2 of The Twisted Mirror. This is a really exciting episode for me. It's the first time I've asked a guest to come narrate. Once I had the idea for this story, I knew I needed a bona fide Southern Belle to narrate, and the perfect person came to mind. Whitney from True Crime Campfire. Some of you are already listeners to the show, but if you aren't, I really encourage you to take a listen. Whitney and her co-host Katie have a knack for picking cases you may never have heard of, and they love roasting sickos like marshmallows. But I think once you hear this episode, you'll be running over to get more of Whitney anyway, so I'll let her work speak for itself. Today's episode is a full story. However, if you would like an unabridged version where I narrate some additional story for some more perspective, you can join my new Patreon. Patrons will get episodes a week early, multi-parters released all at once, and bonus episodes. Building a Patreon audience will help me invest in equipment and continue to improve upon the show in many ways over time. Finally, if you love Twisted Mirror, please rate and review and share with anyone you know who loves the macabre. You can follow me on IG, join the Facebook group and or page, and I'm on TikTok too. I'm also beginning to take submissions for the show. You can find info about everything I just mentioned at twistedmirrorpodcast.com. Now, the Twisted Mirror has been lonely, waiting for your return. Come visit, rip off the dust cover, and fix your gaze on its reflection. You are now staring into the
1: Twisted Mirror.
0: Secrets protect. Sometimes they protect good. Other times, they protect evil. But is the difference between the two always as clear as we'd like to believe? In today's story, a beloved grandmother leaves behind some letters for her favorite grandchild. In them is an inheritance, a secret. One that will be passed down like original sin was passed down from Adam and Eve. We all like to think we're born into this world a clean slate, but we all inherit something. It may not be what we want or what we deserve, but it can become our burden to bear nonetheless. My dearest Lily Bean,
1: by the time you read this, I will be gone, and you will be sad. But I've lived a long life, and none of us can live forever. I loved all my children and grandchildren, but Bean, it's you who I know will be the matriarch of our family, the one who will hold us together like glue, the one who has a heart that is pure and open. That's not to say you're perfect, little Bean, no one is, and it's important to always remember that. "'You are a young woman now, and you will face challenges that you could not have conceived of when you were just a little rosy-cheeked cherub sitting on my lap. "'I remember once, when you were very little, you asked about my mamma and papa. "'Your mother gently pulled you away, and though I could not hear her, I knew she told you the rule she'd known since she was that age herself, because you never asked again.' We don't ask Nana about her life before, when she lived in what you could hardly even call a town, down in Mississippi. But there was something she didn't know, that I had long decided that some day I would tell you. It was your birthright to carry the story of where y'all came from. Because while you know a life of happiness and wealth and love, I came from the dirt. I came from pure evil and from pure good and that blood runs in your veins. I see so much of my mother in you, at least the way I remember her. That's why, when you were born, I took one look at you and asked your parents if they would name you after her. They knew for me to ask such a thing, to utter of the time in my life I kept locked in silence, that it was important. And bless them, they did. So, now that I'm gone, Lily Bean, it's time for you to learn about the time we don't speak of. These days, my memory is foggy, and sometimes it feels as if my younger years were lived by someone else, as if I'd watched it all on a big screen. But I guess that even in my young naivete, I knew that I should write it down for posterity, a type of historical journaling, if you will. I always knew I would tell someone, I just didn't know who yet. And what I didn't know at the time is I wrote it for my future self as well, for gratitude when I thought for a moment I might take it all for granted, for perspective, when I felt wronged, that very few people are all good or all bad, for accountability, because all that I have, all that you have, came from blood, and for faith, because I know there is a greater power, I saw it with my own eyes. How do you hear me in your head when you read my words? My voice is a blank slate for you to place any voice you like, but I hope you hear me the way I hear my mama's voice, young, gentle, bit hazy, like a humid summer sunset when the lightning bugs would start to blink all around our little shanty. She'd help me chase them. It's one of the few clear memories I have of her. To be honest, I don't even really know if that's what she sounded like. Voices are one of the first things that starts to go when you lose someone at a young age, but she'd always come to me in my dreams. I believe it was truly her, and in them, she sounded just like that. I suppose that's enough for me, at least the present me, though I suppose even this is the past me by the time you read this. It's time my younger self tell you the story of how I became who I am, for me to tell you about the time I never told of. It's always hard to start these things, so I guess as they say, I'll start at the beginning. I'm an orphan now, but I did have a mama and daddy. Mama died when I was about seven, when she was just 21. About a measles ran through the town we were living in, and she'd never had them before. We both got sick at the same time, and I got real bad too. So bad that I hardly got to say goodbye. Of course, at that age, you think your parents are invincible, So I didn't think I'd never see her up and about again. I thought she was resting in bed, just like me, and then we'd both get better and we'd still have each other. But they said it spread to her brain and there was nothing that could be done about that. While the measles didn't kill me, it got dang near closer to killing me than you probably will see in your lifetime. Now you get a prick before you could even remember and measles is just a word in a textbook to you. And as you know, I wasn't always deaf and mute. I had a voice. I could hear the birds singing, the crickets at night, Mama's laughter, Papa's screams when he'd get drunk and angry, the crack of his slap against her cheek whenever she tried to stand up to him. But the measles messed all that up. Afterward, even when the rest of me felt better, it was like I was always ten feet underwater. I could hear sounds as if they were misshapen blobs. Sometimes I would get this ringing in my ears that would come and go. The doctor told my papa that it would likely get worse, and I'd be full deaf eventually. That my nerves were ruined by the infection, and there was nothing to fix them. I was actually pretty good at reading, thanks to my mama, and I remember the doc had left some notes for my father. As soon as he left, daddy tossed him into the trash, and that night I snuck and read what I could. Something about a school for deaf children. I was so, so sad that my mama was gone, but this gave me hope. My daddy was a mean man. Maybe he'd send me away. Then I wouldn't have to live alone with such a mean man. He didn't like me anyway. I don't think he liked mama much either. She was just 14 and he was 32 when she got pregnant with me. You could get away with that kind of stuff easier then, especially in the tiny towns and hollers we lived in. With the Great Depression and the Dust Bowl, parents simply had few choices. I don't think they were always so poor, at least they did care for her before Daddy took her, as she seemed smart and loved to read all kinds of books. We used to walk all the way to the library, and she'd read me stories. You see the thing about my daddy is he could be real charming, and he was handsome in his day. He knew all the things to say to make the church ladies swoon. They all thought the world of him, especially since he was a travelling preacher, a man of God, but at home he was always so angry. He would call my mama names and hit her. He didn't like her doing anything but serving him. He said it was her biblical obligation. The man is the god of their household, and she should worship him. So despite being smart and beautiful, Mama wasn't allowed to do much of anything outside the house unless it was in the service of feeding, cleaning, or breeding. She had a tough time giving birth to me, though maybe because she was so young then as there simply wasn't as much to go around when they'd met. And so, she never gave him another child, and I think that made him mad too. He said he was supposed to spread his seed, that he was supposed to be fruitful. That's why he took such a young bride, that it looked bad that the Lord didn't bless him with more children, and that it must be because she wasn't worthy. It was never him who was the problem. She told me, She wanted to be a teacher, so she poured that into me, always showing me new things. We'd go into the woods, and she'd point out the plants and bugs. She knew so much. And then she was gone, and my world not only went quiet, it went dark. The morning we would lay my mother to rest, Daddy and I sat at the small table in our little shack, eating some buttered grits and shrimp people left us food at our door and would continue to do so, a perk for such a devout widower. And thank goodness for it, since he didn't know an egg from a chicken leg. Daddy, I said. I could feel my voice was loud in my throat, but I had no choice now that I couldn't hear myself very well. Am I going to that special school for the deaf so I can learn how to do the signs with my hands? I asked. The spoon that was on its way to his lips stopped short, and he held it there. Oh, how those seconds felt like an eternity. I knew somehow I'd stepped in it. That's how it was with him. You never knew what you'd say or do to set him off. Sometimes he had good days when he'd come home with a smile on his face and a glimmer in his eye. He'd fool me into thinking he cared that whatever made him so angry was fixed and this was my new daddy. But something you'd do or say would wipe that smile clean off his face. Maybe you were a little too giddy. Maybe you told a joke, or he'd find a way to point out all the ways you'd done your chores wrong. Point is, that jovial mood, in the blink of an eye, would be replaced with a scowl, like the devil himself took over. So I was always walking on eggshells. But I learned from watching my mama. She never gave up. She never stopped trying to make him laugh or ask him about going back to school herself, even if she got a licking. So, like her, I asked about the school, even if deep down inside I knew it was dangerous. Slowly, Daddy lowered the spoon and stood up, walked over, cocked his arm back as far as I'd ever seen him do it, slapped me so hard I nearly fell out of my chair. My ears roared, and my eyes went completely blurry from the surge of tears. My cheeks stung like a bunch of bees had attacked it. He stood over me, pointing down and yelled so loud I could actually make out some of what he said. Never speak again. Don't need school. Your job is to be home. I was so confused and yet terrified to remind him that I couldn't hear much of anything. But he must have seen it in my eyes, because he ripped a sheet of paper from my notebook and jaggedly carved out a few sentences. He held up his written rant, the hand quivering in a rage, while the other one squished my cheeks together, forcing my eyes to look at the note. My chest heaved so hard with sobs and my eyes were so smushed up by the way he squeezed my face I couldn't keep my eyes focused. It made me cry more. I was so scared and now I had no one to protect me, no one to stand in my path and take the hits for me the way mama did. He must have realized it was counterproductive and yanked his hand away. He held the note up and repeated the words loud and slow. Women don't need to read. You will serve me in this home. Your mama left, and now it's your job. You will never speak again. You are deaf. There's no point. If I catch you opening your mouth to anyone, I will kill you. It would be the beginning of me learning how to read lips, though that would take years, because he did everything in his power to keep me silent, to keep me from listening and learning. After we buried my mother, he packed up our things and we hit the road again. I didn't speak again, and for years after that, in our home, with him no longer having a wife, I served all his earthly needs. For the most part, so long as I didn't fight, he wouldn't beat me or grab a switch and whip me. I learned very quickly that it was easiest to stay quiet and do whatever he asked of me. I tried to be brave like my mama once, and learned I wasn't strong like her. It was easier to be meek. To the world, my father was a widower raising a sweet little deaf mute all alone, preaching the word of God from town to town, never staying long enough for anyone to ask questions. Oh, how the donations poured in for his ministry, so righteous was he. That's how things were, until the events that changed everything. I was eleven or so. We had settled back in a town called Howland, Mississippi. Daddy liked to go to these tiny towns where they hardly even registered on the map. He found their devotion to be the strongest, their unquestioning generosity to the Lord to be the greatest. His shtick worked with them the best, because unlike many other preachers, he stayed poor like them. He forsook wealth. He made them feel their poverty was part of a righteous path, and not by the design of earthly demons like him. They felt he was not taking advantage of them, He was a humble servant of God, and everything he did was for the Lord. He decided to stay in Howling for a while. He was getting older and tired of always traveling, especially during the hot, sticky summers. We stayed in a little shack, surrounded by tall trees, not a neighbor for at least half a mile from the main road. He said this could be our last stop. His promise to every town we'd stopped in, and to the good people of Howling, was that he was saving all the donations he'd ever collected, aside from a very modest stipend to support his precious little girl, to build a Christian school for the deaf in Mexico, to spread the good word to the depraved Catholics and do some good for children like me. The smell of bacon and eggs sizzling on the fire pit outside was what woke me that day. It was rare he'd ever made me a meal. It was my job to do the cooking. I peeked outside the door timidly, and when he spotted me, he jumped up and clapped his hands together. He was in one of his good moods. He liked living out in the woods for the privacy. See, they all thought I was a 100% deaf. And for all intents and purposes, I was functionally deaf. People can't go around yelling at the top of their lungs to talk at you. And even then, I couldn't pick up everything, but I'd gotten good at reading his lips in combination with the muffled tone of his voice. But I couldn't let on to anyone that I could hear one bit. I was to look down around adults. They thought it was because I was shy, I knew it was because he didn't want me practicing with anyone else. My deafness, my muteness, had become our maker. Addie, just one more. One more sermon and we'll be able to leave, he said to me all gleeful. I watched him, my expression flat. His responses to emotion were too erratic to ever take the risk. Sometimes laughing would make him laugh. Other times it would throw him in a rage, so I always let him be the one to emote for the two of us. He charged toward the house, passing me at the doorway. He waved me over to the steamer trunk we packed our lives into every time we left for the next town. He gave it a good push and pulled up pieces of the floor. Underneath it was a big old canvas bag full of more money than I'd ever seen in my life. We won't have to do these revivals more. One more round of donations, then we can go to South America. We can live off of this forever. No one will ask any questions. They'll think we went to Mexico to make that school and if they try to find us, we'll we'll be long gone. You'll be my woman, and we can live in peace. Soon we can build our own flock. You'll give me the children your mama was too wicked to give me. For how good I got at holding in my reactions, it took everything in my being to stop from bursting into tears and throwing up the bile I felt bubbling up in my throat. I didn't know a lick of Spanish. I wouldn't have an inkling on how to read anyone's lips but my daddy's. Any small sliver of control I had over my body and my life would be stripped for good. I was already his prisoner, and this, that trunk full of money, was my life sentence. After my mama had died, I dreamt of her often. Those dreams were my reprieve from the endless subservience and torture I experienced at my father's hands. Some dreams were like memories that replayed in my sleep. Other times, they were new experiences, and I was sure she was really there, that she was still talking to me. She was always how I remembered her, young, pretty, with long dark hair. We were usually barefoot, as Daddy didn't like us to have shoes unless we asked him. So if we wanted to go to town, we had to ask him for our shoes. He said shoes were a luxury, and God wanted us to be simple. But he always had shoes when he preached, and he always gave them to us for church gatherings. We needed to be poor, not pitiful. In my dreams, I could hear crystal clear. So many of my dreams were just of us walking in the forest together, skipping hand in hand to open fields, laughing together. Now that she was gone, there wasn't any occasion to do so at home. I used to wish I'd fall asleep and never wake up, or that the dreams were the real world and the nightmare was really me sleeping. But you always know that the dream isn't the real world, even when you're in it. The night before he showed me all that money, I dreamt of her. But this time it was different. In my dream I woke up in the middle of the night, in the old shanty, the one where we'd gotten sick with measles. That sickly sweet smell of a fever was in the air, just how it had been when we were sick. This time, though, I wasn't sick. This time she wouldn't die while I was shaking through cold sweats in my own little corner. This time I could say goodbye. I shot up and ran to the one tiny room in the shack where her and Daddy slept. Daddy sat vigil in a tight corner with some other people I didn't recognize, but I barely made note of them. I knew I could not waste time. She was not how I remembered her. Her skin was ghostly and clammy. Her body and the sheets around her were drenched in sweat. The bones in her wrists looked as though they would break through and expose themselves. Her once creamy, smooth skin was mottled with angry, raised red splotches. Her long, shimmering brown hair, now soaked, was matted and stringy strands clung to her neck and face. Was she already gone? No. Her chest rose and fell ever so slightly. I looked around and it seemed no one was doing anything. No one was fixing her hair or cooling her with a wet sponge. Even with my daddy as vile as he'd been to her, Once he'd gotten a bad case of the flu, and she spent all night tending to him, even in small ways to make him a little more comfortable. I don't think he ever even thanked her once for that. I walked over to the basin of water and grabbed the sponge floating in it. I squeezed out the excess water and climbed onto the bed. Her eyes were closed, and I wasn't sure she even knew I was there. I stroked the hair off her face and neck, and I dropped some water onto her flaky cracked lips. The drops just sat there. She didn't swallow, didn't react. I dropped water on her forehead and neck. I dabbed the excess off with her sponge, making sure not to irritate the fiery rash that covered her from head to toe. Then I kissed her. She was so hot, as hot as my face felt that day Daddy slapped me silent. As I pulled away, her eyes opened, and it looked like it took all her strength just to lift her lids. I think she smiled. The movement in her lips was so subtle. Mama, I whispered. I don't want you to go. She slid her hand over mine and gripped my wrist. Please, Mama, I miss you so much. Please don't leave me. Don't leave me with him. The tears I cried in hiding all these years finally had her audience. Addie, she whispered, making sure to connect her heavy gaze to mine. Be kind. Her grip on my wrist melted away. Her throat rattled and she was still. Mama. Mama, no, not again. Take me with you, Mama. I can die too and then we can stay together forever. I cried, but she was gone. She was gone and I would never get her back. Not for real, at least. The door creaked behind me. And then, when I turned to face it, I was back in my room, lying in my cot. The door creakin' was not in my dreams, or maybe it was at one point, but now it was creaking in the waking world. I could smell the alcohol-soaked sweat of my daddy, hear his heavy breathing through the dark country night, and at that moment, for the first time, I
0: hated my mama for dying, for leaving me with him. Maybe deep down inside, Daddy, there was an ounce of mercy, and he
1: noticed the deep melancholy in my eyes at the news of us fleeing the county. Or Maybe he was simply in a good mood because all his lies were about to pay off, and so he felt himself magnanimous. He stood up and reached into his pocket. How about after breakfast you go to Mr. McKinley's and get you some candy? So shiny coins hit my palm, I could not contain myself, not for the world. My eyes probably grew about ten sizes. What a treat! Daddy permitted me candy about two times a year, on Jesus' birthday and the day of his resurrection. This was an already hot late July morning and there were no Jesus-related events to speak of. One of the joys of being a child is the ability to quickly find oneself in the present. And despite the horrifying news I'd learned, all I could think of was going down the road to grab my new best friend Jody and having her bike us down to Mr. McKinley's general store so we could buy treats and eat them up till our bellies ached. Normally, the eggs and bacon breakfast would have been a great treat itself, but to the child's palate, it's fudge and ice cream that tugs at the tummy. I rocked back and forth in my chair in front of the food. There was a lightness in the air, despite the clawing humidity that rose as the minutes passed. I now know it's because Daddy was getting what he wanted, a new young bride to replace the one he lost, and soon he wouldn't have to try so hard to hide it as he did now. I shoved food into my mouth as quickly as I could, Two slaps to the table startled me and nearly made me choke. Slow down, he mouthed. I slowly gulped down the mouthful of eggs. He gazed up and down at me skeptically. Go on, go get Jody and get your candy. You ain't gonna see her many more times anyway. Go on. Don't take too long, though. You still got your chores. The fleeting joy of the candy was met with the gut kick that was the realization I would lose my best friend. The only person in all my years of moving who understood me it was hard to make friends with my issues and with all the move Most kids ignored me or even bullied me, and I didn't tell my daddy because I mean, he was my bully too. But there was no way I was giving him a chance to change his mind. I pushed my chair back and ran right out the front door and through the path that led out to the large dirt road that went to Jody's and then town. Jody was about half-mile up the road, and I got there faster than I ever had. Jody was poor. Not fake poor like us, and her dad had died when she was little like my mama had. Except she had two brothers and one baby sister, who were from a different daddy. That daddy disappeared before the little girl was born. Her mama came to the Lord when daddy came to town, and so as a faithful member of his congregation, daddy didn't mind me having a friend in Jody. Jody's mama was outside washing clothes, and when she saw me, she turned and hollered, Jody came out in seconds. I showed her the coins and pointed toward town. In a few months we'd known each other, Jody and I had started to build a little secret sign language of our own. When you're a kid, time doesn't move as fast, especially on long summer days. So those few months we had together were like a lifetime. We relied a lot on written words and expressions, but important words had signs. So, of course, we had one for Candy. When I did it, she gestured for me to wait and grabbed her bicycle and an extra pair of shoes for me. I'd forgotten to ask Dad for mine. They were a little big, but I managed. Jody was a little older than me. Just turned 13, in fact. I can't tell you why she took a liking to me, but she did. Our friendship felt so easy. She seemed so smart and tough and fun, and she wanted to be friends with me. We didn't talk a lot, of course, but we did a lot. We explored the woods behind our houses and played games, and sometimes we'd sit down and pass a notepad or a little chalkboard I had, and that's how we'd talk. I was homeschooled, so I didn't get exposed to many kids. But Jody did go to school, and I thought that made her so sophisticated. Even though looking back now, she was just a poor little country girl living in a crowded little cabin like me. When she got candy, she'd sneak me some, so it was only fair I'd return the favor. Jody's strawberry blonde ponytail waved in my face, and I stood on the spokes behind her. The wind whipping past me eased away the film of sweat that coated my skin. I decided to push the bad news I received deep into the place where I hid everything else. As she pedaled away, I felt free, like I could fly. I felt like a child when I was with Jody, the way I used to feel when it was just me and Mama. You couldn't have told me a damn thing was wrong with life as I rode along with Jody, even though everything was. The general store was in town, where the people with more money lived. The people in town were different from us who lived in the backwoods. They went to the big white church with the steeple, and they wore fancy hats every weekend and patent leather shoes with buckles. They had fans to blow the hot air around the congregation. Our church was the earth, Daddy said. All we needed was a tent to shield us from the sun and the word of the Lord. There were maybe a few people from the big town that came to the revivals, but most of them who came were the ones who didn't have as much to give, and yet they gave it still. They loved them the Lord. They screamed and spoke in tongues. I liked the revivals, believe it or not, because I could hear some of the goings-on. The loud murmur of the crowd praising the Lord. The way the earth shook underneath me as they stomped in unison. The peaks of the shrill cries of the women as the Holy Spirit hit them. My daddy's sermons were loud, and he growled, and though I could not understand what he said, I could hear the rhythm of his speech. I could feel and see the crowd reacting. I could see people jump up and throw their hands to the Lord. Daddy could just lay his hands on a person, and it was like he'd struck him with lightning. Women in their Sunday best would fall back into the arms of ushers who caught their fits of holy ecstasy. So you could understand why my daddy was so intimidating to me. It wasn't just that he was bigger, stronger, and had total dominion over me. He seemed to have a direct line to the Almighty himself. When music played, I felt the vibrations running all through my body. I lived in a fishbowl. Unable to hear the world, unable to reach out and truly connect, but at the revivals, I was part of one giant living organism. And in my own way, I was important, doted on by the congregants. Everyone would look at me and smile when the collection plate was passed around, and he reminded them that I was his inspiration to open that school in Mexico. They truly loved him. They admired how he was humble like them. He didn't live in a big house or drive a flashy car— He told his story of how he'd lost his beautiful young wife, how he once had money and left it all to preach the gospel, how when me and Mama were sick, the Lord came to him and told him to build a school for me and the poor deaf children in Mexico. Only part of that was true. We had always been poor. He'd always done his preaching, but it wasn't until his wife died and his baby girl had gone deaf did the money flow. They handed over their money because he was an honest man a man devastated by multiple tragedies. Those measles that hit our home was Satan himself trying to test him like Job. But the losses fortified his strength in God that he would do his bidding. And so he lived in a little shack with me and traveled all around the South, becoming somewhat of a minor religious celebrity, going from small town to small town, saving every penny raised. "'When Jody and I pulled into town, "'Main Street was busy with people going about their days, "'grabbing groceries, eating at the diner and whatnot. "'We couldn't get to Mr. McKinley's store fast enough. "'I took the coins out of my pocket and I handed one to Jody. "'She mouthed, thank you, "'and ran over to where the hard candies were to select her bounty. "'I went to Fudge and grabbed the fattest hunks I could find. "'I loved Fudge so much. "'It was one of my great joys in a little life that had so few.' Mr. McKinley gave me a little salute as I handed over the change. I had acquired two large pieces of fudge, and I intended to savor every last bite. Just as I finished up with Mr. McKinley, I glanced out the window and noticed a man sitting on the bench outside who hadn't been there before. A chill came over me, but I hadn't felt it before or since. It wasn't fear. It was as though I'd seen him before. I guess you could say it was a déjà vu, but that don't quite capture it. He was long and bony, and he wore a dark black suit with a black hat. While the suit might have implied wealth and means, it was dusty and tattered. The shirt under his jacket was probably a crisp white linen when he first got it, but it was yellowed with years of grime. His eyes were sunken and bloodshot. His skin glistened in the beaming sun. His face was blank. Perhaps what was most strange, what made him stand out to me was that he was a colored man. You see, the general store was whites only, and you wouldn't find anyone who wasn't white just lingering outside. I didn't quite understand the intricacies of it all at that age, but I simply knew it would be trouble for him. I'd seen what the good people of Howland and its neighboring towns had done to colored folk who poked around where they weren't supposed to. And yet there he sat. I wondered was he sick? Did he need a glass of water? Maybe he felt like he had no choice but to sit there. See, Houtland, Mississippi, was what we call a sundown town. And while we were in the light of day, many folks who weren't white didn't see the need to risk things at all. They had their own stores, their own communities on the outskirts of town. His presence alone was defiant. As my thoughts wandered, he caught me staring, and I froze. Then I felt that sensation— that he was somehow familiar to me, grow stronger. But I couldn't place him. Suddenly I saw something hit him, and when it did, it exploded and drenched him. A water balloon. I looked at the direction from where it came, and I saw the three of them, two of the Miller boys and one P.J. Riley. They were a cruel group of misfits about Jody's age. The Miller's dad was the police chief, and P.J.'s had something to do with local government, and so they could do as they pleased in their minds. The man didn't react. He stood rod still, his hands resting on his knees, and the water dripped from his brow and rolled off his wool suit like water off a duck's back. Then another one hit him right on his right cheek, hard. I looked at Mr. McKinley, who shook his head. I have a feeling most of the adults in town had about enough of those boys, but he didn't seem to care more than that. I felt what I was seeing was wrong. I just knew it. Those boys loved to torment me, too, the little deaf-mute girl who couldn't say nothing back. I remembered the words of my mother the night before, the dying words she'd left me in her dreams, be kind. So before I knew it, I'd stepped outside and in between the man and the boys with the water balloons. I'd always been so terrified of them, but I'd be gone soon and would never have to face them again. Besides, the balloons would be a relief under the high summer sun. I'd long given up the notion that I was as strong as my mamma had been, but for a few seconds, I felt like her spirit of defiance ran through me. I wondered if that's why I felt so odd when I saw him. What if it was her from heaven, reminding me that she was watching? Now, I may be painting a picture of myself that isn't quite accurate. I didn't look as brave as my actions may have indicated. In fact, I didn't look at those boys at all. I just stared at the ground with my hands behind my back as they threw those balloons at me as hard as they could. Those hellions had great aim and they made sure to pelt my face. But my body was a shield for the old man nonetheless. All the while, they laughed. I could see it in my periphery as the barrage soaked my entire being. And then it stopped. I looked up and there Jody was, picking up rocks from the street and throwing them with her pitcher's arm she picked up from her brother's. I noticed Miss Cunningham scolding him and sending him on their way. I turned to the old man. He looked so frail, so gray, despite his dark brown skin. I thought he looked hungry, the way the bones in his face were so pointy and his eyes so deep set into their sockets. The bag holding my fudge was wet and torn. Be kind, I remembered. I knew Mama was watching and what she wanted me to do. I reached into my soggy bag, took one of my precious pieces of fudge, and offered it to him. His cloudy eyes looked at the square in my palm and then up at me, and he smiled. It was a painful smile. Reminded me of the grimace I'd seen when Daddy had prayed over somebody who was afflicted with lockjaw. His teeth, at least all the ones that remained, for he was missing several, were a mix of yellow and gray. His gums were in some places receded nearly to the root— and there were some sores on other parts. I nudged my open palm forward. Take it. He simply held the wide grin hard and still, as if he was stuck in it, trapped even. His milky eyes glazed over and his jaw quivered as if he was smiling so hard it hurt. One of the fingers on his lap began to twitch, and I was sure he'd reach out. My concentration was broken by a yank on my arm, Jody was back from her business with the boys. She pointed at the man and shook her finger at him while looking at me. Don't touch him, she yelled. You can't speak to him, come on. That was easy enough to understand. I was not supposed to interact with that man. That's not how we did things then. I never had to be told explicitly, but I understood that was the way of things. Jody wasn't coming to his rescue, only mine. Jody dragged me down the street, and the other fudge fell through the wet bag and onto the ground. I pulled out of her grip and grabbed it before the ants could get to it. I wiped clean the sticky side that had touched the ground. There was no way I would give up on my precious fudge so quickly. I stole a quick glance up to where the old man sat. He was gone, and nowhere to be seen. As if he'd never even been there in the first place. I was young, though, when a child's memory's short especially when excited about the rare gift of fudge. Jody hightailed us back towards home, and I struggled to hold on to her in the disheveled paper bag with its sugary contents. As we bolted down the dirt road nearing her house, melted fudge dripped down my arm, and I grew impatient. I tapped urgently on Josie's shoulder, and she hit the brake so hard a little puff of dirt floated around us. She turned to face me. Yeah? I pointed to a tree we liked to sit in. I wasn't sure if she was riled up about the boys or me getting tangled up in the whole thing, maybe both, but that seemed a cool her hot mood. We spent the next hour or so filling our bellies with sugar, bees buzzing around us trying for a taste of the sweet, sticky chocolate that coated our fingers and mouths. After a while, Jody declared she had to go. She had chores to take care of, clothes to wash for church and the like. Hell, I did too. Then I remembered Daddy's announcement and how I wouldn't have many more days of this, and I got sad, but I didn't want to tell Jody. I didn't want to spoil the fun we had. I decided I wouldn't tell her to the last second, or maybe not even at all. As I'm sure you understand, goodbyes hurt. I nodded somberly, Jody gave me a funny look, but she didn't ask. She was just a kid too, and I don't think she knew how. She offered to ride me home, but I declined, wanting to delay my arrival as long as I could. I handed back her shoes to her and bid her farewell. Oh, how I dreaded going back home. Daddy'd make me pay for his kindness, never was free. She made sure I got a good look at her. See you tomorrow, she enunciated, making a little steeple with her fingers for church. I forced a smile and nodded yes. And so I dragged my feet home. Humming along the way, a tiny act of rebellion against my father. I spent a lot of time looking around, noticing small things, like a little bug carrying a leaf on its back or the bird's nest perched deep into a tree. On a quiet country road like that, I existed in complete silence and my eyes were my primary sense. The sun beat down in the early afternoon and I sought out as much shade as I could from the trees that flanked the wide barren road. On one side was just forest, the other open field, a farm way off in the distance. I looked down at the dry dirt, digging my toes into it, spelling random words as I ambled forward. I was thankful for words. Daddy stole my voice, but he couldn't take those. They lived inside of me. I spotted a small twig and grabbed it. Crouching down, I inscribed into the dirt, Lilibeth Monroe, Mama's name. Around it, I drew a big heart. I still missed her, every day. You see, I thought she was an angel, both in life and death. All I remembered of her was her kindness and how I felt safe. But it was blurry, not much different from the dreams I still had of her. It made the image of her surreal, beyond human. And sure, I idealized her, I still do. She never gave me a reason not to. I smiled at my little tribute to her, and I thought to myself for sure I'd see her again, not only in my dreams, but one day when I died and gone to heaven. I stood up to continue my march home and betrayed my vow of public silence with a yelp. Inches in front of me stood the man, the one who'd been sitting on the bench outside the store. We didn't have stranger danger the way you had as a child— I knew nearly every adult I crossed paths with on any particular day, yet I knew something wasn't right. He was tall, like one of the trees from the forest had come to life. So tall I had to arch my neck all the way up to see his face. And boy was he even skinnier than I thought, all bones, as if he hadn't eaten nothing but bread for months. His brown skin was dry and coated with dust like he'd been walking the road for ages. His nails had dirt in them, and the veins stuck out like worms from his battered hands. His fingers were long and bony, and the knuckles were so thick, I wondered if he could bend them at all. When my eyes took the long trip up and finally reached his, his expressionless face twisted into a sharp smile, much like the one he offered to me as I tried to hand him my fudge. I thought to offer it again, but I'd eaten it all and felt like a greedy sow for it. I stood frozen. I didn't know if he was a good man or a bad man, but I felt his presence meant something. I can't explain it other than, you know when you come across a spirit like his? He moved much like I would expect a tree to move, deliberately, laboriously, like each of his limbs was a thirty-foot branch. Slowly he knelt down in front of me, that smile inching closer to my face. I wondered if his rotted teeth hurt. He didn't say a word, holding that overstretched grin until he was on one knee, his face just inches from mine. I couldn't move, so I let my eyes do the searching. The road was desolate. Nothing moved, as if all life had fled. There wasn't a bird or bug in sight. When he was down to my level, he tilted his head far to one side as his eyes softened against his hard smile. I'm sure my eyes were as wide as dinner plates staring back at him. From his side, he raised a shaky hand, slow as a sloth. It made every second feel never-ending, and I regretted wishing that my walk home would never end. He raised the rough hand to my cheek, cupping it ever so softly. The way he moved his arm pushed the yellowing collar of his shirt open, and that's when I saw what I'd missed entirely before. Along his neck was a thick scar. A keloid, inches in height and thickness. It looked like when they till the earth, a raised band of flesh. Like the worst rope burn you could imagine. I'd seen a lynching before. Some man accused of getting fresh with a little white girl. Mama didn't want me to go and put up a fight, but Daddy always got his way. Townspeople drug him right out of jail and didn't waste a second stringing him up. Daddy explained that's what happens when his kind don't know their place. But even as little as I was, I knew something wasn't right. It didn't feel like the Lord was there. The way the crowd seemed to enjoy the pain didn't feel Christ-like. It didn't fit with how my mama acted to people and always taught me to act. And it didn't make sense to me why this man was being strung up for that, but Daddy married my mama when she was a girl herself. So I figured it had less to do with what they said he did... "'and more to do with who he was. "'But I thought that these were grown-up affairs "'and grown-up things were not for me. "'I didn't think people survived something like that, "'but I was in no position to ask questions. "'The man stared at me holding that bewildering expression "'as his calloused hands slid up "'and the tips of his fingers touched my earlobes. "'In an instant, my ears began to ring. "'Sometimes this happened,' Tinnitus was one of the parts of my progressive hearing loss. Sometimes my ears would ring, and then there would be minutes of complete silence. The way people say happens when a bomb goes off. Slowly, what's left of my hearing comes back, but after one of those ringing episodes, it can be dead silence for a while. But this time, after the ringing, I felt... I felt a pop and a wave of relief. There was just this clarity as if my ears were packed with wet cotton balls and somebody pulled them out all at once. The sound was so bright. For years, I'd lived with muddled sounds, ringing, hints of the aura world around me, but it all felt so far away, like I was sinking further and further into the ocean a little bit every day. When the ringing stopped, I couldn't believe my ears. I heard crickets. The chirp of a bird, the man's breathing, the stick in my hand falling onto the floor when I dropped it from the surprise of it all. I guess you might think I'd have screamed or hollered with joy, but I stood there still motionless. I didn't know what to make of it, what to do. I relished every second of it, though. I can hear those moments in my mind's eye still. His dry, dusty lips curled away from the smile, and he said four words to me his voice hoarse and choked as if somebody was holding him by the throat. Blessed are the meek. I knew my scripture. I was the child of a preacher, after all. I had my mama's old Bible, and she'd underlined that passage. I learned so much about who she was as a person from what she underlined in that Bible. I thought maybe I should say the other half, how they will inherit the earth, but it stayed trapped deep in the back of my throat was this man an angel he just brought my hearing back but he didn't look how they made the angels in the paintings he was ghoulish he was dark his teeth were rotten out of his mouth and his neck was savaged so i stood there and you know how it is it was probably seconds but boy did it feel like forever and then the ringing started again i wanted to cry i could feel it all slipping away I could feel myself sinking back into that lonely abyss, my ears filling up again, blocking all the little clear sounds of the world around me. Instead, I stayed frozen, just as I'd learned to react to dangerous men. He stood back up so slow it looked painful. Then he nodded, tilted the brim of his hat at me. I could sense in his eyes he was telling me something. It was just the faintest of eyebrow raises, but it was knowing, as if to say there was a secret between us, a bond, that he saw me the way I saw him on that bench. Without another word or look, he walked into the line of trees and vanished into the forest. When I tell you I ran, you think running to Jody's for fudge had me at top speed? You should have seen me race back to the cottage. See, that man had done nothing to me, in fact, he'd given me a beautiful gift, but on the outside, he was everything I was taught to fear. Maybe the smart thing to do would have been to follow him, but instead I ran back to the true ghoul, the one I shared blood with, because he was the devil I knew, the one I'd grown comfortable with. When I got home, I was relieved to find Daddy napping on the hammock outside, and I crawled into it with him. Daddy's revivals were known for their energy. From the music, to the sermons, to the way he laid hands on everybody who waited in line hoping for their miracle. And in this final one, he was electric, energized by his sight of the finish line. He would not leave that tent with any less than what he needed to complete his mission. I sat in my spot next to Jody as her mother waved her arms up high, singing. The crowd moved in undulating waves like schooling fish. The ground shook with a rhythmic thud as their feet stomped in praise of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Normally, I'd be right there with them, not just performing my duties as the preacher's daughter, but moved by a spirit myself. Whether it was Jesus or something else, I don't know. But I was stuck on what happened the afternoon before, the magic man who touched me and made me hear. See, people would beg my daddy for healing. They'd line up at the end of service and tell him what ailed him and he'd call upon the spirit to heal him. They put their faith in his promises and his words. Yet nobody ever questioned why this man of God, a healer, couldn't do what that man did for me. That man laid his hands on me and I could hear, just as I had before the measles, if only for a minute. Daddy was sweating bullets, his spit flying in the air as he delivered a roaring sermon. People jumped up from their seats and waved their hats at him. Others raised their palms on high, bowing their heads and whispering their prayers. People clapped and they shook their hands in the air as affirmation of my father's words. I knew when someone was speaking tongues sometimes because Daddy would bring his mic to their lips. The tent was buzzing. But I sat there, blank wondering if I should have asked that man to heal me permanently, or if he was like the devil when Jesus was fasting for forty days, tempting me with worldly desires. While the congregation soaked in the Holy Ghost, I knew what they didn't, that when everyone was asleep, we'd pack our things and leave without a word. They'd never see us again. I'd never see Jody again. I'd be lost, forgotten. During worship, Jody tried to get me on my feet, and then when I barely even swayed, she grabbed my notepad from my pocket. What's wrong? she scribbled. I wanted to tell her so bad about the man, but it'd have to wait till after service. I'd decided that I would find a way to tell her about me leaving. Not right away, but I'd find a way to leave a note at the tree we used to hang out on. So I simply wrote later under her question. She gave me a suspicious glance, but before she could insist, her mama gave her one of those sharp looks that told us we should be minding the Lord, not each other. Jody would have to wait for her answers. So I sat there, watching as my father patted the sweat off his brow, his chest huffing and puffing. As his lips moved, the usher passed the collection plate around. I watched as each person dropped a coin or a dollar, each unwittingly contributing to my permanent ruin. I wanted to scream, to yell that I didn't want to go, that the money would never help deaf kids, not even me, that if any nice family would take me in, I'd be a good girl. I'd do all my chores and never talk back. I'd go to school and get all A's. I'd do anything to not have to leave with him. But I hadn't spoken in years, and I didn't have it in me to speak up then. I knew my father, the real Ernest Monroe. I saw that little sparkle in his eye when the plates filled to the brim. I didn't know for sure what he was saying, but I knew they were false promises. Maybe that he would build the school right away if they gave a little extra, because I I'd never seen so much money in those plates. I felt like I was being buried alive under the weight of it all. As the late morning came, so did the abysmal humidity. Ladies' paper fans swayed back and forth, the backs of people's necks were beat red, and small little whiffs of musk would pass through the rows of seats with even the slightest of hot breezes. This is when Daddy would invite people up, and they'd tell him their woes, how their arthritis was flaring up, or how they had cancer, or how their son had run away and not come back. He would put on a show, lay hands on him to cast the devil out, filling him with the power of the Holy Ghost. They would walk, they would cry, they would believe the cancer had been given a deadly blow, and the crowd would go wild. Daddy stood up front, and I knew he was calling those up who needed prayer. But he stopped speaking, and his eyes seemed to look far back at something specific. And with that, everybody turned. I followed suit. What I saw nearly caused me to scream out in confusion and fear. There stood the magic man, at the very back of one of the aisles, slowly making his way forward. I felt so hot, but from the inside, and it made me sweat all the more. Was he here for me? Was he here to take me away? I gripped Jody's forearm and she looked at me, bewildered before looking back at him. That's the man, she mouthed at me, recognizing him from the candy store. I nodded. There wasn't time for me to explain anything to her, because we were all wrapped by the out-of-place man in our sea of white faces. I felt the hush in the tent as the man trudged down the dirt aisle. No one moved a muscle except to watch him make his way. My daddy smiled and gestured to the crowd that it was okay. He waved the man in, but despite his Christ-like actions, I knew him. I knew the subtle nuances in his face. Where everyone else saw a smile and a welcome, I could see the seething disgust hiding underneath. I could see the rage he'd hide in a laugh, or the condescension lurking underneath the compliment. I knew he wasn't happy to see the man, and I was terrified that if that man wasn't here to hurt me, that he'd tell my daddy about our exchange, and it would be my own father I'd have to fear. The man made it to the front, and before my father could say a word, the man leaned in and whispered something in his ear. I had never seen my dad go as ghost-white as he did just then. He didn't even resist one bit as the magic man took his mic from his hand. The magic man turned around and I scanned the room. Expressions of confusion, indignation, curiosity, and a few of pure loathing faced him. I thought at any second one of those angry parishioners would charge him, and it wouldn't end good for that man, interrupting white folk's sacred time like that. He waited for a few seconds, his unreadable expression slowly twisting into that painful sharp smile. He leaned his lips closer to the mic and said something. I have spent countless hours trying to figure out what it was he said. What short phrase could have caused an entire congregation to do what would come? But I simply don't know. All I know is everyone who heard it is now dead. When he said those words, everything under that tent changed quickly, like when you whistle at a trained dog. My ears began to ring, just like they had when he'd intercepted me on my walk home, but this time louder. So loud I held my hands over my ears, and Jody tried to pull my hands away and find out what was wrong. Then there was the pop, and the muted buzzing of her raised voice focused into a clear pitch. For the first time, I heard her precious little voice the way everybody else did. I didn't have time to celebrate it, because a voice from the other side of the tent yelled, You! Everybody turned to Archibald Reynolds, a local and regular to the revivals, up on his feet pointing ahead. The scowl on his face was so wretched, he was barely recognizable. I thought the magic man was in real danger. "'Blasphemer!' Miss Coulter shrieked, throwing her tambourine. When Daddy ducked and it missed him, that's when I realized they weren't yelling at the magic man. Oh, no, no, no. They were directing their wrath at my Daddy. That's when I started looking all around me, seeing how all their faces were filled with so much hate. Vitriol so strong, it made many of them look like different people entirely.' In my gut, I knew that the magic man, however he was able to make me hear, had given the entire congregation vision. That they could see who my daddy really was. All the vile and sick things he'd done. Their faces now looked a lot like daddy's did when he was angry with me. People started leaving their seats, creeping up the aisles toward my daddy. Their accusations jumbling into one big inaudible murmur like an angry swarm of bees. While their faces had morphed with pure hatred, his had become soft with terror. I had always seen him as invincible. He fed on their love and adoration, and he seemed to grow to twenty feet tall with it all. But now that they'd taken it back, he cowered. He tried to grab the mic from the magic man, who simply walked to the side and the seats emptied as their momentum built and people rushed towards their preacher. Don't you see? That man is the devil. He's been sent by the devil to... Liar, someone shouted. Beelzebub, said another. Before I could make sense of anything, my father was being carried away by the crowd. Daddy, I cried for him. Jody looked at me funny. You can talk, she asked. Why didn't you tell me? I shook my head as if to say I didn't know, still too unsure and self-conscious to use my voice any more than that one simple utterance. To be honest, I wasn't sure if she was asking about the talking or about the things my daddy had done. But time wasn't on our side as the enraged parade of people carried him out of the tent to the open field. "'In the back of my truck,' Mr. Doubletree shouted to his son. Different groups of men came back with tools and lumber from their vehicles. They started slamming hammers down, building something. My daddy begged to be released. He promised to give all the money back. He promised to leave and never come back. His voice was quivering in a way I'd never heard. He was the one who made me beg for forgiveness, made me promise to be good. Now it was him begging for the mercy he'd never afforded me or my mama. As men held him down, people lined up, just as they had for prayers, and took turns spitting in his face. (laughs) These were not nameless people. These were people we'd broken bread with, people who'd gone to him with family issues, seeking counsel, and prayers. "'folks who weren't the type to start trouble. "'I hated that man, but he was all I had, and I wept for him. "'I didn't want to be with him, "'but I surely didn't want to be left with this crazy mob. "'Maybe they'd turn on me next for being in on the lie with him. "'I looked around for the magic man and found him, "'just outside of the mob like he was invisible to him, "'holding that overextended smile, "'his eyes so wide they might fall out of their sockets, "'watching the people throw dirt and rocks at my dad.' His eyes slowly moved from that scene to meet mine. They softened, as if conveying he recognized me. I hid behind Jody. Mama, she shouted. I looked over and saw Jody's mama kneel to grab a big old handful of dirt. Her mouth was turned down into a vicious snarl. She hawked the biggest wad I'd seen yet, spitting it right between my father's eyes. She sealed it in when she slammed the mound of dirt she was carrying onto his face, digging it in as hard as she could. I couldn't believe my eyes. Jody's mom was a no-nonsense lady, but she was one of my father's most devoted members, and never could I have imagined her doing such a thing. The cracking wood and the sound of men heaving took my attention away. I looked over just in time to see him pulling on ropes, erecting the thing they'd been building. A misshapen... Enormous cross. No, 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 no! I still feel goose pimples rise along my arms when I recall the shrill screams from my father. I've heard a lot of screams in my life, but nothing like the ones of someone knowingly being dragged to a crucifixion. Daddy! I called out. This time he heard me, and as the crowd led him forward, he looked right at me. Addie! Addie! Never had I heard him so happy to see me. Run to town! Get the sheriff! Tell him to come! Hurry! I'm sure it seems foolish, but children? No matter how much they get hurt by him, love their parents. All they want is to be loved back. To someday earn their ever-elusive approval. So my first instinct was to go and run for help and try and find some sort of end to this madness. After all, he was exposed, and I felt that meant I'd be saved but Jody grabbed my forearm as if she could sense my thoughts. If you go, you'll never be rid of him, she said. Her normally blue eyes were nearly all black pupils, as if something had replaced my fun-loving Jody. She was right. Besides, by the time I ran all the way to town, he'd be torn to pieces. All I could do was bear witness to his suffering the way he did mine. Except unlike him, I would take no pleasure in it. Damn it, Addie! Addie, go! Right away, there isn't time! Maybe he thought in the chaos I couldn't understand him, but I think he knew. He knew I'd made a choice, because that little jolt of energy, that spark of hope he felt finding me in the crowd, I recognized the look on his face when it fizzled, just like my face did when he slapped me silly for daring to ask about school and told me to never speak again. He wailed as they lowered the cross back down and forced his body onto it. When they jammed rusty nails through his hands and into the wood, he shrieked as they raised the cross and the hole in his hands gaped under his weight. He murmured underneath quiet sobs as they all cheered and pelted him with random objects. Thornton Bigsby, who used to pat me on the head with a smile every Sunday, unzipped his pants and urinated into a thermos. He swung the open end toward the cross, the long stream catching my father nearly from head to toe. I cried silently, watching my predator become prey. I think that's when he came to terms with it all. He stopped pleading. He just went quiet. Just like when he took me to watch the man the town had snatched out of jail. He got real quiet too when it got close to the end. If you know your Bible or at least you know your crucifixion, you know that it doesn't kill instantly. It takes days of suffering, the vultures circling you long before your body quits. But this crowd was hungry for his end. They didn't have time to wait for him to starve or die of an infection or heat stroke. I noticed then, women and children carrying dry branches and leaves, piling them at the base of the cross. Jody slipped her fingers through mine, and we gripped tightly. Lemuel Laporte, the butcher one town over, who was an usher and a devoted member of my father's flock, poured gasoline from a gas can onto the kindling. As he poured, he recited to the crowd with vigor. "'A worthless person, a wicked man, walks with a perverse mouth. He winks with his eyes, he shuffles his feet, he points with his fingers.' Perversity is in his heart. He devises evil continually. He sows discord. Therefore, his calamity shall come suddenly. Suddenly, he shall be broken without remedy. Burn him! Somebody shouted. The threat of being burned alive must have reignited my daddy's will to live, because once again he pleaded asking for forgiveness, reminding them that Jesus forgives, that Jesus washed away all our sins, including his, with his blood. Miss Cunningham shouted back, Then let it be like Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Nebuchadnezzar thrust them into the flames, and his son shielded them. Miss Cunningham was an older lady, the kind who could recite chapter and verse from memory. She was an Old Testament kind of lady, if you know what I mean. All the kids were scared of her, even the Miller boys. She always had a scowl, even before the magic man. Except when she saw one Ernest Monroe. Soon as my daddy came round, she was all sugar. If you are innocent, let the flames watch over you. And if you are a sinner, let the flames burn away your sins. The crowd roared as Billy Joe James placed a lighter into Lemuel Laporte's open hand. Daddy screamed so much that it had become white noise of a sort, a backdrop to the chaos of the crowd. Lemuel flicked open the lighter and tossed it onto the pile. The kindling ignited in one big whoosh, so hot that even where I stood in the distance, the scorching air blew past us and dried up all my sweat. I squeezed Jody's hand tighter as the flames quickly crawled up the dry wood and engulfed the cross and my daddy on it. Miss Cunningham cried over the roaring flames, her arms high and wide, her fists shaken in the air, her head tipped back far, and her chest tall as if to offer her soul to our Heavenly Father. If it be so, our God, whom we serve, is able to deliver us from the burning, fiery furnace, and he will deliver us out of thine hand, O King! The crowd shouted inaudible nonsense at the pyre, and grabbed rocks and whatever they could pick up off the dirt, and threw them at Daddy's engulfed body. I never thought I'd wish away my newly-gotten hearing, but right then and there, I wished the magic man would make my world quiet again. The yowls of someone burning alive never leave you. Neither does the smell. Charred sweet flesh and burnt hair mingling with the normally pleasant scent of burning oak. Eventually, my wish came true for the screaming to go away. Not because the magic man took my hearing back, but because my daddy had gone still. Daddy was gone. I wouldn't have to run away with them. My silent prayers had been answered, but all I felt was sick. There was a lull as we stood there, watching the flames die down, leaving behind the charred husk of the man who brought me into this world. I searched for the magic man again, but I couldn't find him any longer. I wasn't sure what this meant for me. I pulled my hands from Jody's grip, but she didn't take her eyes off my dad's corpse. Jezebel! A voice rang out. "'Thief!' said another. There was a small scuffle, then another. Suddenly, the faithful flock that had executed my daddy for his many sins seemed to all be turning on each other. Pure chaos erupted as people wrestled and stabbed and shot. Even children weren't immune to the bedlam as their cries emerged from the tangle of bodies. I tugged on Jody's arm. We had to hide but instead of running away from the chaos, she looked back at me. Run, was all she said, as she ran towards the crowd where her siblings and mother were. Just as she'd confronted the Miller boys as they attacked me, she ran towards her siblings in need. The cross that held my father, weakened by the flames, cracked and crashed down on the crowd. The people who it landed on screeched as the smoldering embers singed their flesh. Others, now crazed, began to crawl atop the sloped cross to pull the roasted flesh off his bones. Some even feasted on it. I ran back into the tent and crawled under the makeshift stage. Now I’m not so sure I needed to hide. I believe now that I was divinely shielded from their venom. I closed my eyes and plugged my ears with my fingers. I had seen enough. I just wanted it all to end. I wanted to hear the birdsong and the dry grass blowing in the wind, not this. Some of the havoc spilled back into the tent, and I peeked my eyes open for a second to watch Mr. Harper swinging down a piece of burnt wood on someone on the ground between rows of chairs. He shouted, Why do you pass judgment on your brother? Or you, why do you despise your brother? For we will all stand before the judgment seat of God. I shut my eyes tight again and hummed to myself. I tried to fill my mind with pleasant images of the good times I shared with my mama, but the smell of burnt flesh and blood tinged them all in a sea of red. Finally, it all went silent. I slowly pulled my fingers out of my ears just to make sure. Even the random moan or groan ceased. Now, all I heard was the electric buzz of cicadas and the lonely chirp of a cricket. I was sticky and covered in dirt. "'my muddy dress dripping with sweat. "'Mosquitoes pricked at me from head to toe. "'I was afraid he was out there waiting for me. "'What did this magic man want? "'I'd only ever been kind to him, just like Mama told me. "'I don't know how long I laid on my belly in the dirt. "'Of course, it felt like I would died "'and this was some sort of never-ending purgatory. "'I wondered if this was the rapture, "'if all those people were taken to the Lord "'and I was left behind.' Maybe Daddy was right. Maybe he was a man of God and I was no good, always disobeying and getting things wrong. I could not move, paralyzed by fear and confusion. What was I to do? I was all alone and just a little girl. So I waited and waited until I heard footsteps, slow and dragging, coming down one of the dirt aisles. I didn't need to look to know who it was. I trembled so hard my teeth chattered and urine trickled down to the earth below me. The steps got louder and louder until I saw the feet right in front of me from under the stage. I couldn't hardly breathe. I thought I might die just from the fright. He didn't say anything, just stood there a minute or so waiting. But of course I pinched my lips shut as hard as I could and held my breath. Then he lowered onto one knee, A hand reached under the stage, covered in dust, knuckles swollen and covered in scrapes, offering an upturned palm. I watched it, not saying a word, and it seemed like the only thing I could hear now was my syncopated breaths and my pulse beating in my head. He just waited there with his hand out. He didn't coax or explain. He didn't peer underneath the stage. He simply kept that hand there waiting for me. I can't say why I decided to reach out to him. Perhaps because I knew running away from someone like him was futile. And because I suppose in some odd way, I knew he was the only person I had left. He helped me up to my feet, and we walked side by side, my little hand in his. I glanced over to the aisle where Mr. Harper now lay dead, and there she was. My Jody, My sweet, fierce Jody. I only knew it was her by her dress and her Sunday shoes. The magic man gently guided my face away. I didn't react too much. Your mind tends to shut down during times like these. We walked peacefully through the field, to the main road through town, where I was sure that someone would get in his face for the sight of a little white girl in tattered clothes, covered in dirt, holding hands with them, but it's as if the world was blind to the sight of us. We boarded a bus together and sat silently for hours until the adrenaline wore off and I fell asleep against his side. I awoke to the bus driver announcing the final stop. We were up north, farther than my dad had ever taken us on his preaching circuit. I was so hungry and thirsty when we stepped off that bus. It was late, and he took me to a quiet diner where he watched me eat. The waitress didn't say anything to us. She just brought us food and then left the table. Add a hamburger and fries and a milkshake. What a treat that was for me at the time. Daddy never took me to restaurants when it was just me and him. After that, we walked and walked and walked. My Sunday shoes looked nothing like they had that morning when I polished them. We finally stopped in front of a building with a long staircase that led to two large doors. Claremont School for the Deaf. My ears rang the sounds of cars driving along slick roads and the random sounds of the city streets went underwater again. Believe it or not, I wasn't sad about it this time. After the things I'd heard, I was okay not ever having to again. The magic man let go of my hand and pointed up the stairs and nudged his chin toward the doors. I walked up and knocked for a long while. Finally, a man opened the door. Oh, you should have seen his eyes. He must have thought I was a ghost, the way he took a pale green hue. I turned to point at the magic man so he could explain, but of course he was gone. I never saw him again. No one knew who I was. There were no documents, no paperwork. Everyone who knew of me, or who cared to, was dead, or maybe assumed I'd died too. There were so many bodies, and many of them unrecognizable. The incident was known as the Howland Massacre, and reduced to something of a local cult legend. A preacher had strayed from Jesus, and he and his cult followers committed ritualistic mass murder-suicide. They hung him up like Christ and consumed his body, just as the scripture says, then each person was forced to pay for their sins at another's hands. I wonder about Jody and the other children often. Why weren't they spared? Was it because when I tried to help the magic man Jody pulled me away? I think of the last words she heard, Why do you pass judgment on your brother? Or you, why do you despise your brother? For we will all stand before the judgment seat of God. I'd like to believe that if she'd had time, if many of those children had more time, they would have seen the evil and how their parents saw folks like the magic man. Jody wasn't that singular moment. Not yet, anyway. But I suppose we don't get to choose when and how we pay for our sins. Maybe she was a villain in that moment, but she was my hero many times during my time in that town. And I truly believe that her sense of justice and fairness would have caught up with her if only she'd been allowed to evolve. So I took on a new name. It'll be the one by which you know me, Jody. It's a constant reminder of the sacrifice she made, of how most people aren't all good or all bad and for me to try and hold forgiveness and understanding in my heart. I try to live the life I believe she would have lived had she been given the chance. I spent the rest of my childhood years at that school. I learned American Sign Language, how to read lips, all the things my dad had tried to keep from me. But I haven't spoken since. Something about that day made me never want to utter a word again. The hearing loss progressed just as the doctors had warned, but it's okay. I have my own ways of observing things, and I do just fine with it. When I turned 18, I was given a few dollars by the state and sent off into the world. I got a room at a local boarding house and a job working as a seamstress in a local factory. They were humble beginnings, but I was proud of how far I'd come. On my first night in my new home, I lay in bed, tossing and turning. It's always hard to fall asleep that first night in a new bed. That's when the ringing happened. I could just feel in my spirit this was not the usual tinnitus. This rang deep in my head. I waited for the pop. And when it came, first I heard the ticking of the clock. I don't know how that done drive you hearing folk absolutely mad. What I heard next glued me to my bed. The creaking of the wood floors of the corridor. The dragging of feet. My room was at the end of the hall, and I felt like I might age twenty years before they reached me. I gripped the sheets at my sides as I waited for him to arrive. The steps got louder and stopped when I saw his shadow under the door. A large envelope slid underneath it into my room. The shadows stayed there for a few moments, and then they trudged away, growing quieter and quieter until my world went silent again. I shot up out of bed, took a deep breath and ran over to the envelope. I tore it open, taking the stack of documents to my empty writing table and switching on the little brass clamshell lamp. There's a note affixed to the top of the pile. In typewritten letters it simply stated, For they shall inherit the earth. I couldn't believe my eyes as I pulled that page aside. Behind it were stacks and stacks of financial documents, investments, I know now, perfect investments, in my name, as if someone knew every single stock that would climb and put their money in it. I had always wondered what came of the money hidden underneath our shack. I just figured it rotted away or that one of the local corrupt police claimed it as their own. I was wealthy beyond comprehension, and sitting in a tiny little room with two outfits to my name and three dollars in my purse. You more or less know the rest from here, Lily Bean. The son of the owner of the clothing factory was a handsome, sweet man who showed me how love can heal even the most festering of wounds. Yes, I still went to work after learning of my fortune. I suppose it felt odd not to work. All I knew was hard work. I married that man, your grandfather, and I helped him grow that business to something fruitful in its own right, and we made it a wonderful place to work, unlike many other factories at the time. But you know about the business side of things now, so I won't bore you with that. As you know, I helped build schools for the deaf all over the world, in places little children would never otherwise have the access. Of course, it was a mission worthy on its own merits, but now you can understand the greater significance of that calling. I did not open those schools in the name of the Lord. I would not offer opportunities to them in exchange for such a thing. I had seen how people wielded his name to deceive and hurt, how it permits those who were hungry for power to use it as a shield. Their relationship with their Lord is their own to discover, not for me to impose. Lilybean, you need to know all this because the wealth we have, that you will be responsible for, comes from blood. I cannot change the man my father was. I cannot bring back all the lives lost that day. I believe that the man who showed up in our tiny little town made a decision, that it would be my responsibility, and now yours, to carry that load. I like to think he saw my mamma in me the way I see her in you. We must do what we can to pay forward what we were given, what was once stolen through lies. So I do my best in this world to counter all the sadness and hate I saw as a child. I don't know if that man was the devil or an angel. Your opinion on that may change depending on how you look at him. My father wore the cloak of Jesus, and people believed that made him a good man, (laughs) and, well, you know now who he really was. But maybe trying to separate the divine like that into two separate beings is getting it all wrong. Hardly anyone is all bad like my daddy was, or all good as I like to think of my mama. Most of us are somewhere in between like Jody. Like me. I just made the right choice in front of the candy store that day. Many of those people who went to church that morning, who raised their children with love and helped their neighbors, were the same ones who ran innocent people out of town with pure hate in their hearts. Some did plenty worse than that to people made in the image of God just like them. And if we're made in His image, oh, what a reflection we are. What separates the righteously indignant, the swift hand of justice from cruelty and evil I don't know that there's a perfect answer, but I do know that Magic Man was kinder to me in many ways than my father ever was. And he gave me a life that most people would have thought a little shoeless deaf girl from the deep south had no business having. He also killed my best friend and her family. I think a lot about the wounds on his body, that thick scar around his neck, and I see the pain he was given, the pain he inherited. That type of pain... "'demands vengeance. "'The evil he was given had to be answered for. "'The slate had to be wiped clean. "'Yes, we are all sinners, "'but I presume some sins just hold a little more weight. "'Some sins linger for generations. "'Some sins need to be cleansed by blood. "'So maybe it's all one higher divine justice "'that just like us isn't just one thing. "'Maybe sometimes it's merciful.' and others, brutal. And like on that humid Sunday afternoon, maybe it was both at the same time.